Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. That is a great deal that the society can and must do if the Negro is to gain the economic security that he needs. Now, one of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed uh, annual income, a guaranteed minimum income for all people and for all families of our country. It seems to me... It seems to me that the civil rights movement must now begin to organize for the guaranteed annual income, begin to organize people all over our country and mobilize forces so that we can bring to the attention of our nation this need and this something which I believe will go a long, long way toward dealing with the Negro's economic problem and the economic problem with many other poor people confronting our nation. On uh, a question about a policy that is getting, seems to be some momentum, but it's not often talked about in Washington yet, which is a universal basic income. You've begun to have people go back to both Milton Friedman and Martin Luther King Jr. who said we should really have a fundamentally guaranteed standard of living in this country. Yeah, I am absolutely sympathetic to that approach. I mean, that's why I'm fighting for a $15 an hour minimum wage, why I'm fighting to make sure that everybody in this country gets the nutrition they need, why I'm fighting to expand Social Security benefits and not cut them, I'm making sure that every kid in this country, regardless of income, can go to college. But that's what a civilized nation does, what a civilized nation does. And here's the point. This is the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. But nobody in America knows it because their standard of living is going down and almost all of the new wealth is going to the top 1%. That is an issue that we have to deal with. In the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, top one-tenth of 1% 1 should not own almost as much wealth as the bottom 90%. Everybody in this country should, in fact, have at least a minimum and dignified standard of living. The economy is, is doing well here in the United States. Tax cuts deregulation, a stock market that's been booming, although it's been a little iffy the last couple of weeks. Are you concerned about income inequality? I, I, I think with the coming on of AI and other things, that, that, that there is certainly a danger of income uh, inequality. Why? And Artificial intelligence, why? Because it... it, it what is the amount, amount of jobs it's going to take away and so on? And that's coming. You think that's going to happen? There's no question it will. So we, we, we've got to come up with ways of you know, creating new jobs. and, right. and, and um, um, but I think a basic, basic minimum earnings for everybody, so that every, there's nobody that is having to sleep on the street. So guaranteed uh, basic income or universal basic income. You 100 percent like think that's re really important. Well, there are people in this country who call that a nanny state. You know. Um, some people will, will call it that, but I think that uh, it will come about one day, and I think out of necessity. Out of necessity, and um, and I think that. You know, cities should experiment. You know, you should have. You, the more we can experiment with things, the better. I mean, like, you know, with drug with drug reform, the fact that sure. cities just experimented by, you know, some legalizing marijuana, some uh, doing medical marijuana, and now we can look back and see there wasn't an explosion of people taking mar right. mar marijuana. Um, you know, there's been there's been benefits from you know from all, all the tax and so on. So. If people could do the same with basic income and just experiment with some cities and see what happens.
discussions on the podcast to discuss universal basic income. Um, Scott is a journalist. He is an advocate for basic income and a genuine expert on the subject. So we're going to get into a discussion on what UBI is, um, some of the criticisms of UBI, and why UBI could be a really good thing for income inequality in the country. Welcome, Scott. Thanks. I'm always happy to discuss UBI. Awesome. So let's first discuss what UBI is. Can you describe for someone that doesn't know what UBI is, has never heard of this concept, can you just basically give us the basics on that so that they have a better understanding of it? Sure. Uh, so UBI uh, stands for Unconditional Basic Income. Uh, it can also be referred to as Universal Basic Income or just Basic Income. But I think it's important to stress the unconditional aspect of it. I think that's the most important part of it. And so what it is, it's essentially in, it's an investment in society uh, at an individual level uh, with the provision of a sufficient amount of money uh, paid on a regular basis to uh, with people at least close to or potentially above the poverty line. So meant to cover basic needs, cover, you know, just everyone has to eat, everyone needs housing. And the idea is that, that essentially you should start with enough money to pay for your basic needs. And then employment is for earning above that to actually meet your wants, uh, and luxuries and these other things that, that people still want to work for. Right. So I um, want to ask you, some folks think that UBI should just be BI, meaning, and you said, you know, basic income. I've been hearing some pushback from some folks that they think the hyper-rich should be excluded from any sort of unconditional basic income. So in other words, unconditional basic income should have conditions. Where do you land mm -hmm. on this debate and what are the reasons why? Yeah, so I, I, again, unconditionality is, is extremely important, and uh, you know, there are multiple reasons why that's so important. Um, but also, this, it's, this pushback is also based on kind of a misunderstanding of how basic income works. So everyone does receive it, but the rates are going to be paying far more than they get back in basic income. You know, it's essentially... It's like if their taxes are $100,000 right now, let's say you're, you're, you're fairly wealthy, you're paying $100,000 a year in taxes, and then you take some basic income. Well, so you start receiving a $12,000 basic income, but now let's say your taxes are $130,000. So you're, you're paying $30,000 more to receive a $12,000 benefit, which means you're a net payer, not a net receiver. So it, there's a misunderstanding that somehow, let's say, money will, will drop from the sky, newly created money that everybody receives. And the funny thing about this, that's not even you know impossible to do even. It's just not really what we're talking about for the most part, is that we're saying that this is a tax and transfer and that the rich will pay more than they receive and then the, the poor in the middle will receive more than they pay in. But everyone is paying in and everyone is receiving. It's just some pay more than others and some receive more. Uh, everyone receives the same, but it's not the, the net benefit. So that's one of the main things. And another way of looking at it too, it's weird how we don't apply that kind of logic to other things. So you know, let's say, for example, uh, education. 
well, why is it? Why is anyone saying that? Oh, you have enough money. You're a millionaire. Uh, you sh- your kids should not be allowed to go to public school. You should be you should be forced to to pay for private school. Well, it doesn't make any sense because they're paying taxes just like everyone else to receive that benefit of public school. And if they want to do that, they should be able to do that. They should not be prevented from doing that. And when once you start preventing some people from receiving something that they're paying for, that's also when you start eroding the universal likelihood that, you know, how much people like something. So imagine if we did present, uh, say, the top 20% of the population, let's say, from uh, sending their kids to public school. Let's say we did that. Well, would public school be as popular as it is right now? Or would people, would we have eroded it to the point, you know, saying, well, it's I. Why should I be supporting something that I don't receive? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna support that anymore. And I'm gonna lobby for, uh, let's say, for me to not have to pay for it. And then there's less money going to education. And then education is worse for everybody else. So it's it's important that everybody uh, receive a universal benefit. And I think that goes across the board for uh, for, for many things. You know, universal health care is also, I think, extremely important, where you should not uh, only give to the poor or only give to the elderly, these kinds of things, because then you leave out so many people. And then there's also not only the the problem of people disliking something because they're not receiving a benefit from it, but also you create stigma from it. And also, you exclude people who you actually want to include. You know, so you imagine... When we do it, say, for, for health care, you know, someone, let's say, gets sick and they even die uh, at 62 years old because they weren't old enough to start receiving Medicare for a few years. You know, so we, we're drawing these arbitrary lines, and that has major, major problems. Um, you know, same thing with, uh, with, with disability, I think, is a good example, example, too. So that's a program that needs to be targeted because not everyone has a disability. But the fact that we decide, like, who is disabled enough and who isn't means that there are people with disabilities who have to compete against those without disabilities as if they don't have any disabilities because they get nothing extra whatsoever. They get no help whatsoever. And that's really difficult for them. And also, if you you start receiving disability income because it's targeted, then you can actually lose that income for earning too much income on top of it, you know, because then you're you're essentially, if you earn enough money, then they say, oh, well, you must not be disabled because you're earning $3,000 a month, even though you're supposedly disabled. So we're going to take away your disability income. So that's a problem, too, is that all these problems arise from this targeting of benefits. So we need to get out of that whole paradigm of targeting of benefits and just really actually focus on universalism as something that's extremely important. Like, don't worry if the if a billionaire gets a basic income, they're going to be paying more than they receive. They're going to be paying more than they receive. They're going to support it more. And also the the errors, let's say, of, of um, you know, clawback and whatnot and, and disincentivizing for work and these things, that's at, the upper, that's at the top of the scale instead of the bottom. 
and which is another important thing too, because right now we're giving people welfare at the low end. And essentially, because we pull that away when they start working, then effectively they get taxed at 80%, 90%, 100% or, or beyond. And then we get, and then we get upset with them and say, Oh, you're so lazy. How dare you? And it's like, well, they're just, it's rational. Why would you create, why would you accept a job that you hate getting horrible pay? Um, it's not appealing work at all, but it's the only work you can find. And in return, you're actually worse off or barely better off. But of course, it doesn't make any sense to do that. But if you if you instead universalize it and then make sure that the clawback is through the tax system at the at the uppermost part, no one who is earning two hundred thousand dollars per year is going to you know start working less because they get um, an additional tax credit that they're actually paying more for to receive. You know, it's it, it, it's important to to make all this stuff make sense. Yeah. You know, that's um, impeccable logic. And actually, that is the best argument, well-versed argument I've heard um, against making it just a conditional basic income. And I agree with you. You know, we see it now with a lot of other programs, as you described, where you decentivize um, things that you are unintentionally, it's like an unintentional consequence of what you've done. So in your mind, right. do you see um, unconditional basic income set up as sort of a, the same thing as Social Security, per se, where everybody pays in on their income taxes, um, and then we remove it from being regressive? Like, how does that, how does the plan work in your mind? Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of interesting options as far as rolling it out goes, the kinds of details of, of implementation. Uh, in the U.S., I think it makes sense to actually utilize the Social Security system because we effectively already keep a register of all citizens. It's just people that aren't considered qualified until they turn, say, 65 or whatever, but they already have unique Social Security numbers, and so we can utilize that. And also, Social Security is a very low overhead of 0.7%. You know, it's, it's really efficient. So if it's one thing government is good at, it's cutting checks for people, it's, it's especially through the Social Security system. So I would I would suggest that we utilize that. And I I prefer that over say the the you know, tax code, um, you know, through like a kind of a, treating it like a like a, um, a negative income tax kind of situation. But although you could see it as a fully refundable tax credit, um, where the payment could be paid through the security system. So it's not like one you have to choose one or the other either. Um, but also, you know, funny thing. So I just recently, you know, did the marketplace thing for, you know, the end of the year, signing up for Obamacare, you know, for the next year. And it, 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 this year, I, I found it kind of fascinating how you, you get multiple options. So what you do is you, you, you go on the website, you sign up, and, you know, let's say you qualify uh, based on your income for, let's say, $200 per month in subsidies uh, for your health care. Well, it gives you options. It says, okay, so do you want to use um, none of it and then basically have that like as a, a potentially a, a tax credit you know, at the end of the year? Or do you want to use all of it so that you can really afford maximally afford your coverage or can you do you want to use a portion of it 
and you can decide how much you want to use. And then, of course, you'll have that left over at the end of the year to apply or not. And they do that because you don't know for sure how much you're going to earn. So if you earn more than you thought you were going to, then you actually get less of the the, the, the subsidy. And so then you end up paying more taxes. So it's, there's really a lot of um, a lot of options involved based on the fact that you, you don't know for certain what your income is going to be. And I think I, I like that kind of same setup. I think that we could totally do that for a base income where you have like the same kind of site and you're, you're, you know, you, everyone is, is eligible for say a thousand dollars a month of basic income and you can choose. Do you want that, um, a thousand dollars a month in cash, um, or do you want uh, actually none of it, and you just want to use a $12,000 tax credit at the end of the year to, to lower your tax burden? Or do you want to admit and say, well, uh, I don't need $1,000 a month, but I think, uh, say, $300 a month or $400 a month or something could be useful just in case. And, you know, let's say you go with $500 a month, and then you've got your $6,000 tax credit at the end of the year because you use $6,000 know, total across the year each month. So you could do it in a way that's actually got a lot of flexibility since we already have the, the, the same functionality through the way we, we do Obamacare. Um, it, it could really be quite similar. And then in addition to this, um, I think it would be valuable to set up a postal banking um, or at least you know, we, it would be good to make sure that everybody is, is banked. So that's kind of a challenge. Um, instead of say one option, we'd be providing everyone a you know a, a debit card that they're able to use and they're able to get cash. Um, that that's something that even Social Security utilizes already. But I would prefer to actually use this uh, as an opportunity to get everybody banked because it's. I think it's unfair, and there's a lot of problems from those with low incomes not having access to a bank. They actually lose a lot of money and fees and whatnot for everything else. So let's make sure that everybody's banked in a way that's free of fees, and we could do that through the postal system uh, because everybody you know is is located close to a local post office, and you know, could do that. And also, you set it up online. Um, you know, you can even also set up, say, uh, everybody gets an account at a personal account at the, the Federal Reserve, and they can access it through the post office. And something interesting about that is that um, if it's, say, everybody banked to the Fed, then if we decide as one means of at least partially paying for basic income is actually just increasing the money supply um, instead of letting say banks do it out of out of um, debt, which is how we currently really increase the money supply. So people take out a loan and then that grows the money supply. And then when you pay it back, you essentially constrict the money supply. But if the Fed, if we wanted to use like a stimulative measure and say, um, let's make sure that um, we create enough um, monetary supply to actually meet demand uh, and actually even um, increase the our uh, try to meet our manufacturing output, our productive output by actually increasing the the money supply to essentially nudge up GDP. You know, these are similar measures that you could do through the Fed, 
And if anybody is, say, has a bank account for the Fed, then it would actually be really easy to just say, well, let's create um, $100 per month of new money for everybody as a stimulus measure. And, you know, there it is. Everybody, it's, it's all set up. The, their accounts are there, just appears there, and boom. And also, if you did it that way, then let's say you wouldn't have to raise taxes, you know, for the $900 per month that you would, you know, otherwise to make it the full thousand. Um, so you actually, you could save the, you could lower the amount of taxes required, you know, at the top in order to pay for that. Or you could even just use it as an additional stimulus. So instead of a thousand dollars front, then it would be, you know, during this course of Fed stimulation, it would be $1,100 per month or, you know, or whatever. But so there's a lot of really interesting options and details when you, when you look into well, how could we you know, best implement it in, in whatever country that we're looking at. Yeah, I personally, I do like the idea of using the social security system because I do think it's efficient. It's already existing. We wouldn't have to create another bureaucracy. Um, you brought up, it's funny, you brought up uh, negative income tax. Uh, let's talk about that mm-hmm. for a second. That's a Friedman idea that has been in play for, I don't know how many, you know, 30 years now, 40 years maybe even. Is is negative, is, is Friedman's idea of a negative income tax the same as UBI or was it a precursor for UBI? Look at what's been happening. In a period of unprecedented prosperity and affluence, the number of people on the welfare rolls skyrocketing. Been skyrocketing. Why? Because once they get on, we make it almost impossible for them to get off. In order for somebody who gets on to get off, he or she has to be able to have a really good job because to earn a little bit, get off gradually, now doesn't pay. Mm-hmm. Under a negative income tax, you would have people, give people, give the poor people a possibility of getting off gradually. They can earn an extra $100 or an extra $200 and be better off. As he himself said, it's, a, it's another way of doing it. It, it, it accomplishes, uh, it can effectively accomplish identical uh, outcomes. It's just that, and that's why it can confuse people. And one of the reasons why, you know, we almost did a negative income tax uh, for families uh, under Nixon, and that passed the House in 70 and 71. And so that was a negative income tax variant. And it confuses people because what you do is you say, everybody gets, say, $1,000 per month if you're earning $0 per month. And you get less than that, say, uh, 50% uh, or 50 cents on each dollar is, is removed from that as you earn. And so the amount of your of what you receive varies according to how much you're earning. Whereas the UBI, you receive the exact same, but the amount you pay in varies according to how much you earn. The net result can be the exact same outcome, so that say someone earns five hundred dollars a month because of their income level. It's just you know one way is is clawing back from the actual income itself and the other way is clawing back from the income you earn on top of it. And I would argue that back with Friedman, it actually was much closer. And uh, I wish that we would have done that back then under Nixon. It would have been an incredible start. It would have been an incredible amount of good. But I think at this point in time, it's not the negative income tax variant, although it could accomplish the same net transfer, is not as 
good of an idea as UBI because of increasing variance in income. So let's say decades ago, a lot more people knew what they were going to earn that year and especially that month. You had more regular jobs, more regular salaries. You kind of had a good idea, and therefore you could tell the government what you were going to earn, and that could be fairly accurate without as much error. But nowadays, you know, you've got people driving for Uber and Lyft and doing TaskRabbit stuff. And, and you know, since 2005, uh, essentially mostly all the jobs have created uh, net increased new jobs are in forms of alternative work, meaning mostly contractual, short-term, part-time, temporary kind of labor. And when it comes to that stuff, there's a lot of variance month to month. You you don't know. Like one month you could earn five hundred dollars per month. The next you'd earn fifteen hundred dollars for that month. And then the next you'd earn seven hundred. So, you know, one month you're you're positive you're gonna be able to pay rent no problem. Next month you really don't know if you're gonna make that. So there's a lot of economic insecurity, even if you're earning the same amount. You know, someone could be earning $20,000 and they're very secure because they're earning the exact same every month. The next person could be earning the same amount, $20,000 that year, but it could be varying all over the place. And so it's very insecure and they don't know. And when you do that, with a negative income tax system, because your payment will vary per month, it's entirely possible that you wouldn't get enough that month to cover all of your needs because you you just didn't know, and you know it just didn't work out the way you thought it would. So the UBI, because the clawback is on the back end, you avoid all of those errors, and you make sure that people do feel that security, no matter what their source of income. Scott, you know, you mentioned uh, the gig economy. Another problem with the gig economy that I see happening that is not being addressed uh, by the media very much is the fact that. When these folks go from these um, types of jobs to these types of jobs, they don't have an employer that's paying into the Social Security system on their behalf. So eventually when they retire, there's not going to be any money there for them. And I don't know why this particular issue doesn't get addressed um, by the media or either by economists that I can see. I think it's a real problem that's waiting to happen. And I think UBI can help. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the present and future of work demands, I would say, the universalization of services that we have long expected should come only from the private employer. Pensions are just not the way that even so many pensions were lost from people who expected it in, say, the the financial crisis. You know, that that eliminated a bunch of stuff that that people really worked over life for and they were expected. Fools, the state of pensions in America has been dire for years. A number of private companies have really phased out their pension plans. That's left public government entities with pension plans that are still in financial trouble as well. And one firm thinks that a huge number of those public pensions could actually go under, be unable to meet their obligations to current workers and retirees. My name is Dan Kaplinger. I'm the Motley Fool's Director of Investment Planning. And today I want to take a look at a study done by Bridgewater Associates. It's an investment firm. And they basically took a look at a number of public pensions and came to the conclusion that fully 85% of those public pension plans could fail within the next 30 years. So even 
it's the end of the into the pension system that that has existed for a long time. You can still get essentially screwed out of it at any point and not receive it. So it, it, that entire setup, we we have to look at differently. So you know, in the future, I think it would make sense as well to say, okay, you know, these pensions disappearing. Everyone receives an unconditional basic income. Uh, but we should still have, say, you know, there should be an additional uh, pension for seniors, and there should be a, you know, a child allowance for kids, and there should be a, a disability payment for those with disabilities. So it's not like you're you're getting rid of everything, but you are making sure that everybody has a floor that's always there, and then you want to make sure that that you build on top of it in a way that. Um, you know, helps the most, is the most efficient and, you know, doesn't hurt people by being, you know, pulled away and it's something that they can count on, these kinds of things. So if you if you knew no matter what that when you um, turn 65, 70 or whatever, that you're going to receive a pension and basic income, yeah, there's a big difference. And also, of course, um, you, you do make people more able to save up for their own, um, you know, futures as well. If you have a basic income and you're earning income on top of it, then yeah, people are more free to say, well, you know, I want to be responsible. And even though I know that I have a basic income when I retire, I would like to actually be able to do a lot more stuff when I retire. So I'm going to put away more money now in my say 401k or whatever. And so that's all have much more there. So you, we create a lot more options that don't currently exist. If all you're doing right now is trying to get by, then you only have those options and you certainly don't feel secure enough to let's say put money away like you would otherwise if you felt secure. And that's really a big issue too about basic income is it's not only about the money. It's about this feeling of financial security that really we just don't feel anymore and most people don't feel. 100%. Uh, this is so true. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this rift that seems to be developing between the UBI folks and the jobs guarantee folks because I'm not really understanding why there's a rift. It seems to me that there's a place for both of these things um, if they worked through some nuts and bolts of both programs. One of the things that I hear from the jobs guarantee folks that I don't necessarily agree with is that they don't like it simply because Silicon Valley types support it. And they think that, right, which I, you know, for me, it's like I hear that. I said, well, a broken clock is right twice a day. This is not an argument as far as I'm concerned. You know, if if some Silicon Valley douchebags actually support something that's good, I'm not going to stop supporting it just because they support it. This just is not logical for me. And I think at the end of the day... $1,000 a month for a lot of people is going to make the difference between living in a tent on the street and being able to pay rent. And I cannot possibly imagine having a problem with that. So um, what is your position on this? Do you think there's a rift developing? Am I right on that? And if so, how do we, you know, uh, bridge the gap, so to speak? Sure. So I think there's a, there's some misunderstanding um, on on both sides, uh, I think there's especially misunderstanding on, on the job guarantee side of what a, a basic income is, what it looks like when we do it, and also kind of misunderstanding or not really an appreciation of just how ill-designed the existing system is. 
Um, so if you're if you're a job guarantee advocate, um, you know I know you're looking at this as going well. We want to make sure that everybody can earn an income. There's a lot of people who would be employed but they can't find employment. So I, I appreciate that that sentiment, but at the same time, you're also completely ignoring everyone who has a disability and that therefore they're able to work. And you're saying that I don't want to help them at all. And that can actually you know, hurt them by, by restricting this only to those who are able enough to, to get a job. So that's, that's one element of this that's, that's problematic. It's also ignoring all the work that's already going on that's unpaid. And so then some job guarantee advocates will look at this and say, well, no, we want to pay, say, care workers at home. We want to make that into a job. And so I appreciate that sentiment. But at the same time, you're not going to cover everybody. You are going to help some people more than they are now, which is good. But at the same time, there's a lot of people out there who are doing work that will not ever be considered a job worthy of a check from a job guarantee uh, office, um, be it local or federal or, or wherever. So you're, no matter what happens, if you do a job guarantee, you will have people slipping through the cracks who are disabled. You will have people who are doing unpaid work, who are unrecognized. And there are other, there are a whole slew of other factors as well that could be, again, these, these results, uh, however unintended, of this policy. So another unintended result would be, well, if a job guarantee job is paying, let's say it's uh, $30,000 per year, um, and someone right now is doing that job for $40,000 or $50,000 per year, then you'll actually hurt them potentially because you could actually uh, reduce the demand for what you're doing. Like, why would somebody pay you $50,000 to when they could get someone to the job guarantee office to do that same job for $30,000. So you could actually push down on wages at the same time. So there's, there's just a lot of unintended consequences that could happen. And I think that, that job guarantee advocates could really be relying and looking to UBI to help fill in those cracks. It, it, it works really good as a combo. If you believe firmly in the, in the job guarantee, you should also believe strongly in a UBI because then there ought there, it really solves a lot of these problems with a job guarantee because suddenly you aren't hurting those with disabilities. They at least you know, they still have that floor like everybody else. There's no one looking for the cracks there. And you make sure that everyone, no matter what work they're doing, they're not living in poverty, whereas a job guarantee doesn't do that. And uh, you create that, that bargaining power from based income because you don't have to take a job, because you're not forced into the labor market, then that can actually push upward on on the cost of labor because people are demanding that they won't do that job unless they get paid this amount of money. But if the job guarantee, it's not the same effect. If you, it, it can be helpful to say to an employer, "I don't have to take that job because I can do the job guarantee job." It's not the same as being able to walk away from any every job, anywhere, and say, "No, I've got that covered." That's that's really true individual bargaining power. 
So that's another thing. But also, uh, there also seems to be a misunderstanding on the job guarantee side of, let's say, the amount of basic income and what its intent is. It, it, there's kind of this belief that uh, a basic income is is only intended to say fill in the gap for those who are unemployable due to automation or for whatever reason. And because these people have no means whatsoever to earn income because they're just completely locked out of any income possibility whatsoever, then they need to actually receive, you know, forty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars or whatever. And so therefore they're thinking, well that's a crazy amount of money for the basic income. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is everybody needs to have this floor no matter what, and that could actually enable them to better earn income on top of it. You get to control better what jobs you take, what jobs you refuse, if you do unpaid work, if you do paid work, and if you do a job, guaranteed job or not. Like it, it can really work well together. So yeah, I don't like that that job guarantee advocates are, are fighting against something um, at least not everybody. You know, there are certainly job guarantee advocates that do see that EUBI would work great with it, but those who don't see that, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because also it, it, it's like there are certain job guarantee advocates who believe that, still believe that, you know, essentially, if you aren't working, if you're not doing something that that your community considers valuable, then you essentially deserve to live in poverty. And I think that I think that's wrong. I think that's it's absolutely wrong-headed to to think that only people doing work that someone somewhere approves of uh, deserves the dignity of not living in poverty. It's, it's, that's that's absurd. So there's there's certain people in the job guarantee movement that support a job guarantee because of the fact that it puts more people to work because they think that that is extremely valuable and that, say, people are, are lazy, and then if you just give them money unconditionally, then they'll stop working. So you have to force them into work, and that, that, that choice should be whether you're going to do work in the private sector or work for the job guarantee you know, office or whatever. And so you know, I find a problem with that. And I also I don't like the logic at, at all that says that if someone I don't like supports something that I want, then I need to question that or even not support it anymore. I think a way of looking at that is imagine if um, if a doctor um, who, who believes that universal health care is important suddenly discovers that that um, you know Silicon Valley is thinks universal health care is a good idea. And then turning against it and saying, well, actually, no, I no longer support universal health care. It doesn't make any sense. If you care about health and you're, you're, you've devoted your life to improving health, it would make no sense to suddenly be against making sure that people have health care. Yeah. So just because someone is against something you don't like, it, I think that that's actually very valuable to get people who would usually dislike each other and not talk about things together, not bargain, not, you know, it's an extremely polarized environment. To have something that everyone can agree on is actually very valuable because as soon as you start agreeing on one thing and actually start talking together about that one thing, you can agree on other things as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I, I was actually very surprised to see some of the jobs guarantee folks making these claims. I want to talk a second about um, Richard Wolf, for example. I was stunned to see that he does not support UBI. And from what I can tell, um, from what I can deduce from his arguments, is, is that be, it's because he sees it as a Band-Aid that just slows down the actual change that needs to happen. Richard Branson, multi-billionaire, he wants a universal income for all. His rationale is that robots are taking over. Somebody's got to provide an income for the people who lose their jobs. In favor of that? In principle, are you in favor of a universal income? No. Really? No. Why not? I told you, socialism, Marxism, these things are changing and rethinking just like everybody else. Here's what I don't like about the universal basic income. I like the idea that we can take care of everybody and we ought to as a nation. What I don't like is to divide society into those who work and earn their income and those who don't work and still get an income. I don't see that as healthy. I don't see that as fair. And I see that as a prescription for trouble down the road. Here's my suggestion. When we have technological change like robots, computers, let the work day be shortened. Make everybody work to do their fair share and so participate in the benefits of technology with a shorter work week for everybody so nobody gets an income without working and no one works without getting an income. That would be a better way to take care of people than what we do now, which is use technology to make a lot of profits for people, throw a lot of people out of work, and then be surprised when they're at each other. In addition to it being a band-aid, he seems to be thinking that it creates two classes of people the kind that work and the kind that don't. And I have a problem with that because I don't think that's what UBI is about. UBI is supposed to be um, just supplemental income, not based on whether you're working or not. Everybody gets, what, a thousand a month, 12K a year. And whether you choose to work or whether you don't is irrelevant because it's fair because everybody's getting it and they're getting the same amount. So, um, you know, if I get 12K a year and I use that to supplement my job income because you know we have income inequality, we have lower pay scales, that's a good thing. And there's no way in hell I'm gonna envy the guy that's living off of 12K a year. If he gets 12K a year and he doesn't have any other source of income, that's a really shitty salary. That is really hard to live off of. So why would I be jealous of that guy because he's not working? This just doesn't make any sense to me. It gets you to that basic minimum. And the basic idea behind this is the same idea behind all of these programs, which is you have a better community, you have better relationships among people, you have less social problems if you do not allow extremes of wealth and poverty. That the more extreme the, the difference, and it doesn't really matter how high the high is or how low the low is, if there's a big difference, people become uh, unfriendly to one another, skeptical about one another, afraid of one another, envious of one another. There's a whole set of emotional uh, reactions people have to inequality that makes life unpleasant, unproductive, dangerous, etc. So that to avoid all of that, you have a minimum basic income so there's nobody in such an extreme situation, at least, uh, as you would normally have in modern capitalist societies. Are there dangers? Of course there are dangers. The biggest one in my mind is you create a new difference. The new difference is those people who work and earn a living 
and those people who, for whatever reason, don't work, but still earn a living. This is going to create two classes of people, and they're going to have troubles between them. So for me, the big issue is, why do that? I like the idea of community building by not having people that are extremely wealthy or extremely poor. But I don't like this way of doing it because it creates the worker, the non-worker, yet both earn income. Maybe it is just a band-aid. Maybe it doesn't solve everything. But in the meantime, we have to do something about income inequality. And I don't think that... I don't think that the folks, I, I think the logic is the, the Silicon Valley folks want it simply because then it will push away their guilt and then they no longer have to address the income inequality, income inequality that they have helped create. But, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily buy into this argument. And I think we do need an overhaul of the system. I would like to see, you know, more co-ops. I would like to see, you know, in Sweden, for example, they have uh, workers and union members placed on every board of directors. I mean, there are many things that we can be doing, and I don't think UBI excludes those things. I don't see that there, this as any sort of a mutually exclusive end game. Yeah, no, I was just saying, so again, these things work really well together, and I actually emailed Richard Wolf years ago about this. And because at the time he hadn't his his view of basic income wasn't known yet, and I wanted to know what that view was, so I emailed him about it, and yeah, I was surprised to to get that response because I, I even wrote to him in like an original email um, how I felt that it would be so positive for co-ops, like if you if everybody has essentially their own venture capital. And they have the ability to refuse to work for abusive, exploited, exploiting employers. Then they're that much more able to pull the resources together and create a co-op, and you know to pursue that. As long as people can't refuse to work and they don't have enough money, then you make that very difficult. And it's funny too because Richard Wolf believes in subsidizing these kinds of ventures uh, through the tax code. So let's say um, you would pay less taxes if you had a co-op versus if you had a you know corporate um, you know, setup of some kind. And so he believes, well, let's say if you would pay um, you know, $10,000 in taxes under the existing system, and if you had a co-op, what we should do is say you only owe, you know, $1,000 per year. We should give you $9,000 of subsidy so that it makes it more possible. And so, again, it's weird because that's exactly what basic income does, is you are subsidizing people's choices. You you are providing that tax credit. You are enabling them to better choose to do that. It's just he wants to kind of force people into that by only giving people a choice of, say, this or co-op instead of saying, well, actually, I don't want to do a co-op. I actually would just want to do unpaid work. I'd rather volunteer. And so, like, why wouldn't he support that? I, I think it's weird that you want people who have better democracy in the workplace and better democracy in general at the same time as not really supporting that in full and just saying, well, because I want them to choose this that I like, then we should restrict those other choices. So I... I, I Really, I, I wish Richard Wolf um, was more trusting of people 
to actually pursue co-ops on their own instead of kind of nudging them or coercing them into it. And the other aspect of this, too, is that, again, it is really important to, uh, to actually provide people the power to say no. Uh, you know, we're kind of discussing how you have the power to say yes to things like co-ops and volunteering, but you also, again, have the power to say no. You can say, I will not work for you unless you meet my requirements, and that can be wages or exactly. hours or working conditions or benefits or share of profits. Exactly. Um, all these things would be demanded that aren't demanded right now. And so let's say the uh, socialists in general would are very behind unions, and at the same time, unions are being absolutely eroded by automation. And that will continue. As, as you're able to automate more and more work, then unions will have less bargaining power to demand that employers meet their demands. And so we understand that, that unions have done a lot of good for us through creation of bargaining power collectively. Uh, by, making, by, by people banding together and together saying, we will not work then you can shut down workplaces and you can demand stuff in order to get what you want. And basic income does that on an individual level. So again, it provides everyone the ability to do that individually. And you can even, that can assist in unions as well. Because they can say, you know, right now unions have to fund enough of a strike fund to be able to strike and make sure that, that everyone involved in that strike can still pay their bills and, and eat and these kinds of things. And then there's, a, there's, a, there's a limit to that. You know, it, it, every strike fund runs out, and so there's always a time limit. And it's like that battle between if the employer can outlast the strikers or if the strikers can outlast the employer. So with the basic income, suddenly that time limit goes away. You can have unlimited strikes. And so that's an amount of power that is not possible without basic income. So if you want greater worker power, you absolutely should be supporting an unconditional basic income because of the leverage it would provide to all of labor. And again, because it increases more more democracy, if your if your goal is that you think it's important that um, we have more. Um, you know, democratic socialism in America, and um, a lot of people wouldn't otherwise support that. Well, if that's important to you, then you're going to need more time. You have to organize, you have to get out there, and you have to try to turn people to seeing your side and the reasonings for it. Well, if you have unconditional basic income, then people can volunteer, and they can, they're more able to go door-to-door organizing together. These things become more possible than they are otherwise. Right. So the way that I look at it is that, say, Richard Wolf wants to open a door that's locked. It's You're not going to get there outside of violence, um, violent revolution, really, in order to get that door unlocked. But a basic income unlocks a lot of doors all at once. It doesn't necessarily open those doors, and people will still have to fight to open those doors, some more than others, to get those doors open, yeah. but they do become unlocked in a way that right now they're just not. Yeah. And so it's important to understand that, yeah, it doesn't solve everything, but without basic income, a lot of problems remain unsolvable 
that suddenly becomes solvable with based income. You know, and I, I studied uh, Marx in school. I have a master's in philosophy, so maybe I didn't study it as an economist, but I definitely read him as a philosopher. And I do not understand how anyone that's Marxian wouldn't get behind UBI because it absolutely does empower workers in all the way you described. If if they don't have to worry about going on strike because they have a UBI, they can go on strike. If um, they have that extra money coming in and they want to set up a co-op, they can pull their money together and leave their jobs and set up a co-op. I agree with you. So I'm a little bit perplexed by this position and I would very much love to have that conversation with Dr. Wolf because I'm, I'm very curious about it. I too want to reach post-capitalism. Like that's a goal. If capitalism right, is something right. that has existed for a long time, it, it, it did it did wonders. It, 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 it's capitalism is a great system for defeating scarcity. You start with scarce goods. It, it, it drives uh, the increasing of goods and services in a in a really pretty amazing way. And so here we are reaching to the point where we're automating more and more and more. And that's the problem about capitalism is that it, 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 because it's built on scarcity, it kind of starts, it's already started to enforce scarcity. It's starting to create artificial scarcity where scarcity Absolutely. need not exist. Especially if you look at intellectual property, I think it's a great example because, I mean, we're talking about there is no rarity. There is no scarcity when it comes to intellectual property. There's no, there's no scarcity to digital goods. We could have unlimited um, you know, books and, and, and movies and music and these kinds of things. Um, it, there's no limit to that, but we kind of we artificially create this limited amount of stuff when there's no reason to do that. So there's kind of a breakdown. And also, as stuff becomes more automated, then because people need money in order to purchase the goods of what's being produced by automation, then buying power is decreases. And that causes problems with markets because, I mean, why are we creating all this stuff if people can afford to access it? Because we're demanding that people have jobs started to earn income, but at the same time, people are unable to earn income through jobs that they traditionally were, so they have less money to spend. And the whole thing breaks down. It's a big mess, and it's actually already started decades Absolutely. ago. I so agree with you. We, in, we, in order to get the post-capitalism, I think this is a huge step toward that direction where we suddenly enable this um, thinking of abundance instead of scarcity, this kind of reorient around abundance. And you, again, you can, you can do things for free. You, you don't need to say, uh, let's say like in my, in my example, uh, because I have a basic income, it's crowdfunded on a monthly basis. I start with thousand dollars per month. I, I know what it feels like. And I get to choose. I'm more able to choose if I want to uh, put something out there for free. So I, I could, I can write something and publish it for free. I don't need to charge for it. Whereas other people need to put stuff behind paywalls. So they, let's say they write an article, but they want to make sure that they earn enough to pay for food and rent. So they have to charge for it and hope that people pay for it. And then let's say you get. Uh, 20,000 or 50,000 or something readers paying a certain amount of money to that service that you're using, you know, and that's how you really, that's your only choice. I have the choice of actually putting it out there for free and say, hey, the entire world is free to read this. I don't need the money for this. You don't need, there needs to be no paywall. 
uh, doesn't matter. So I could have, say, millions of people read something that I write because I don't care to receive income for it. Uh, the income that I receive enables me to do this work, whereas right now, so much work is only able to be done if they receive income in exchange for it. So there's really a big difference between the current system and the post-capitalism that we could be going to. And I think that's just such a big, we have to decouple income from work in order to really start going in that direction. I, I would mount, I could mount a totally separate assault on capitalism for many reasons. I mean, one of the, one of the arguments that Marx makes is that eventually the capitalist system will implode upon the weight of itself because there's, the income gets extracted to the point because it was profit driven. It gets extracted to the point where there's no more expendable income left with the majority of folks. And when there's no money left to buy widgets, the system self implodes. I think we've had, I think the real band-aids we've had are credit and globalization. Uh, you sure. know, when with globalization, you no longer had to worry about paying workers more money in the United States because you had all these markets abroad. So if there's less expendable income in the United States with your consumers, with your workers, it doesn't matter. You're going to make up for the profits somewhere else. Well, they've sort of reached the end of that line. And the second thing they did was create credit, which handed more money into the, uh, gave more money to the consumers to spend with. And everybody's sort of maxed out on credit at this point. There's really nothing left. So whether or not, yeah, yeah so whether or not, I mean, I can see some of the criticism that, uh, you know, and I agree with Richard, I, I don't think all free markets have to be capitalist, nor do I think capitalist markets are necessarily free markets. I think they're rigged economies. They're rigged towards the capitalists. Mm -hmm. But either way you look at it, UBI is a really important um, solution, in my opinion, to worker exploitation, to lack of jobs. You know, one of the other, let's talk about the automation thing for a second, because one of the other criticisms I see lobbed from the jobs guarantee folk is that this is not a problem because they're going to replace these jobs with things from like the new green deal. So we get rid of all of these jobs that, that we see as disappearing are, that's, that's actually a fallacy they're saying. They're saying that these jobs will be replaced by the government, whether it's, um, you know, infrastructure with the gr new green deal infrastructure with rebuilding our roads, et cetera. So they think those jobs actually mm -hmm. still do exist. I'm not sure that I buy into that because eventually I think uh, automation is going to reach a critical mass where the productivity is just so much um, better with robots and all these other things. I do see a future where that's the case. Uh, yeah, and so another thing too, as far as this, there's an interaction between a guaranteeing of jobs and, and automation that I actually find quite troubling, whereas uh, you know, one of the reasons I support a basic income too is that it, can, it could enhance and accelerate automation because I think that if a job is out there that is being done by a human that doesn't want to do that and a machine can do it, then a machine could do that job. And so I, I want to automate as much as we can, and I want to you know, enable people to better choose. Uh, if we can automate uh, half of our workload in the next couple decades, then we could all work half as much and still get and still be just as employed as we are now. We just have more leisure time, more access to resources, uh, more security. Right, so that could be our, our goal, and it used to be our goal. We used to actually, if you look at charts or over the past you know, couple centuries, we, we, it's, just, it's just a line that continually goes down as we work less and less and less, as we become more productive. 
And weirdly, in the 80s, in the U.S. especially, then there's a, there's a kink in that line, and we started working more. So we, we started going down to 40 hours, and now we're back up to like 47 hours per week. And at the same time, we're more productive. So why are we working more than we were in the 80s when we're more productive than we were in the 80s? It, it doesn't make any sense. And as part of this is we continually think that we have to create 40-hour-per-week jobs and that people should work 40 hours per week. It doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense to, to have that as a continual goal. So that's the problem with job guarantee. That's another problem it has is that it wants to continually create 40 hour jobs for everybody. At no point is the same, does it have a desire to have 30 hour jobs or 20 hour jobs, you know, as we become more productive. So that's this, this idea that we're running out of jobs because of automation and we need to fill that up, it's a wrong rebalancing. We should all have more time and more control over how we work instead of continually finding new ways to work for an income in order to just survive. And so the other aspect of this too that I also find troubling is that I think a job guarantee is inherently anti-automation because the focus is on employing people. Now, so imagine that, um, you know, let's say, let's say we want to uh, put up a bunch of solar panels. Like, I, I agree with that. We really do want to transition um, to a greener economy and we want, there's all the stuff that could be being done that we really need to do quickly if we want to transition in the next 10 years or less. Um, you know, we got to get our butts in gear in order to prevent uh, climate breakdown from getting too extreme. But at the same time, if, if let's say, if we want to put up a bunch of solar panels and our goal is to employ people, then let's say... Um, we could have a uh, hundred uh, people um, using, you know, hammers and, and wrenches and stuff uh, because we want to employ as many people as possible. But at the same time, we could actually be using automation to actually make the even more productive. You would employ fewer people, but you could even do even more. So let's say you could put up even more solar panels if you used um, various machines and robots to, to help uh, put them up. And so therefore, you know, you could you could do what you could otherwise with 10% as many people, but do even more. With a job guarantee, the incentives aren't aligned to actually make the next the best benefit, the most efficient use of resources to maximize the the what you produce, because the focus is on the maximization of the amount of hours people work. And I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. it you know, people. Especially on the left, will will make fun of Milton Friedman and even hate him for a lot of his ideas. But I think he was exactly right when he and he looked. Uh, there's a story like um, of like he, it's 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 just like a story um, he shared himself, but it actually goes um, it was originated before him. But the story goes that that uh, he walked up to like a bridge being built and um, you know asked. Um, you know what they're what's what's the what's the plan here? And it's like, well, you know, we're building we're building a, a, a bridge. And it's like, well, what is your what's your goal here? It's like, well, you know, the the goal is to employ people. It's like, well, 
if your goal is to employ people instead of building a bridge, then why don't you just give everybody shovels instead of all the enormous security? So, and I, I think that really kind of gets to the heart of this is that you know we are we should remain focused on on kind of task oriented stuff and goal oriented stuff. Like, yes, there's a lot of stuff to do, but we should want to do it as efficiently as possible. And what we should not want to do is try to employ as many possible in order to do something, especially if we do less because of it. Seems to me that we're just spinning our wheels, um, and it, and you're you're thwarting in a way by doing that. You're also thwarting uh, innovation. I think people, if they just yeah. yeah, if you had the basic income, people would be free to be more creative as well. It gives you freedom and. I don't, I don't know. I don't see the problem with that. And I think they're looking at this in the wrong way. I think you're right. I have another example I just want to fit this into. So I live in New Orleans and uh, there's a, there's a certain thing here that's, um, that's, that's something that people do to earn money. And it actually lends a lot to the city itself. It's even, it's, it's the reason people even, um, yeah. you know, come here to, to visit as tourists is, is that you can walk around the French Quarter, yeah. and there are lots of people who will be outside playing music. That's right. Like that's a it's a normal thing. So like music fills the French Quarter, yeah. and we love that. And so that's work, and it's important work. It even lends itself. It, 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 they're not getting paid enough, really. I mean, they're 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 earning change, but at the same time, you've got all these tourists coming here that are enjoying that, and they're here really partially because of that. And they're 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 helping with the tax base. They're paying, um, you know, they're they're enjoying a bunch right. of other you know restaurants and businesses while they're here. So and it's like these people are are subsidized. Like these musicians are kind of subsidizing all this commerce going on, and they're only receiving a small fraction of it. Right. And so I want to stress that that's important, valuable work that they are doing. And at the same time, I don't see a job guarantee office of any kind ever approving that, uh, you know, a buster receives $40,000 per year because they want to play the sitar right. on the corner of something you know, in the French Quarter. Right. It's just, you aren't going to get people to, to recognize how important that work is. They're just going to be like, well, if you would enjoy doing that, then just go do it. But we're not going to pay you to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got, we've got green jobs to, to focus on. You know, we we got to, we're only going to do this and not that. So it's just, you're you're leaving out people and you're not appreciating just how valuable, uh, especially unpaid work and and very low paid work and and work people enjoy doing. It's just being left out of the equation. It's almost like, uh, it's the, I really recommend people read the David Graeber's bullshit jobs to also just kind of, Ponder the possibility that there's a lot of jobs out there right now that need not exist at all. Uh, people are performing work that need not be done. They're getting paid for stuff that doesn't need to exist because they need to get a paycheck. And for various other reasons where, let's say, someone wants to feel important, so they hire a second secretary or something. Because then if you have two secretaries, then they're more yeah. seen as higher esteem than someone with only one secretary. So, you know, that this other secretary has, has less to do and maybe, you know, these people are sitting around just really not doing anything. Maybe they're making things worse. You know, there's there's all these jobs that 
that need not exist, but people in these jobs don't believe they need to exist. They feel terrible right. about having to do these jobs because they feel that they're worthless. I mean, what are you providing to to the community and world at large if you feel you're in a worthless, useless right. job? Right. And I think because of that, then then people in these jobs that they hate, which is actually a lot of people, uh, two-thirds of the U.S. is uh, engaged, in, I mean, disengaged or entirely disengaged by the work that they're doing. Only a third of people are engaged by the work that they're doing. So you got all these people doing this work that they're not engaged by and can even hate or feel useless. At the same time, they're looking at people who are doing jobs uh, that, that could be um, even entirely unpaid, um, you know, and they love that stuff. And so it's like, well, how dare you? Or even these people are getting paid, but not very well. And they look at that as justified because mm -hmm. how dare you ask to be paid well for something that you love? I'm doing this stuff that I hate. Right, and that's, right. that's wrong that you can actually get as much as I am earning but doing something you love. So mm -hmm. that's, that's wrong. You shouldn't be able to do that. You should be paid less. Um, you know, so the, all these problems arise from having a system where you have less control over what you think is valuable and what you would rather pursue. And so much changes and so much is more positive when you enable people to actually do the work that they mm -hmm. want to do and would be happy doing. And also there's a quality argument to this as well. Uh, I've written about in the, called the Monsters Inc. argument for, for basic income mm -hmm. where you know, just imagine there's a big difference between uh, going to a chef who just absolutely loves what they do. They they feel that, that, you know, their entire lifetime has been spent on their craft to become a better and better cook and to make meals that make people happier and happier because it makes them happy to see like this kind of the pursuit of perfection that they're doing. And so if you go to someone who really loves what they're doing, then let's say you get a meal from them, you're probably going to be pretty happy about that meal, certainly compared to somebody who only makes you a meal because they have a gun to their head right. and someone is saying, look, you make this meal or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> right, right. So like, oh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how good it is. They just need to make that meal and get it out there. And that's it. And so, you know, whose who's work are you going to appreciate more? Whose work's going to be better? And so there's a quality difference as well for people who actually enjoy their work than someone who doesn't enjoy their work. Yeah, I concur. I mean, it's marginal utility. Why, I mean, why are we forcing people to work jobs? They're being um, slave, slave to the labor, wage slaves, and they're unhappy on top of it. And this is, again, this is why I don't understand why any Marxian wouldn't support this idea. I find it strange. Uh, I wanted to talk about Finland for a second because, uh, you know, they just finished their two-year experiment with uh, basic income and we're waiting to hear the data come back. And I'm seeing folks saying that, making the case that Finland abandoned their basic income program, but I, it, ergo, we shouldn't start one. But I don't see it. I don't see where they're getting that from because this was only set up as a two-year experiment. It wasn't set up as a permanent program. So I think this is a really disingenuous argument that they're making. Uh, have you been following this? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? What kind of um, arguments do you have to the folks that are making this claim about Finland? And what do you think is going to come out of that data-wise? 
Universal basic income has rocketed in popularity since the banking crash. Bernie Sanders backs it, so does tech titan Elon Musk. Now Finland is hosting the first big trial in Europe. This isn't the purest form of UBI, which would be handed out to everyone, even billionaires. Instead, it focuses only on the unemployed. Still, there's a big jump between pilot and policy, and ministers know it. What's the politics of actually giving people who are unemployed money just to sit at home? I think it's not about just to stay at home because I personally believe that um, in, in Finland citizens really want to work. Just as UBI freed Juha from being trapped on welfare, it could do the same for many others around the world. In labour markets and benefit system, is the long-term unemployed person takes a short-term job uh, he or she might lose some benefits and uh, you get more money rather stay at home than going to work. But of course I understand the criticism because it's um, very open-handed because you give the money and then you don't uh, tax them or then you don't ask what are you doing with the money. <laughs> okay, so there, yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out there about yeah. Finland and it's been, it was, it's been really frustrating to watch unfold uh, yeah. in real time, you know, the past couple of years. Um, so, yeah, to help clear things up, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about here. Uh, first of all, like you said, this was, from the beginning, a two-year experiment, and it was to take place in 2017 and 2018, finished in 2018, and the results from the first year from 2017, it will actually be attended. The, the schedule is for those two results to be known in March this year. And the results of the final uh, two years will be known in 2020. So that's the that's what's um, what happened was that along the way, the Finland experimenters wanted to expand the experiment before the end of the They wanted to, you know, right now, the, the experiment was only focused on the unemployed, you know, a group of 2,000 the unemployed. And the experimenters believed, well, if we're going to study basic income, and, you know, we want to, to study more than just the unemployed, so let's uh, roll this out. So, so they had a plan where they're like, well, let's, you know, do this to have like a phase two of the experiment and kind of expand it. And the government decided that they didn't want to do that expansion. And so that news got out as being confused with the fact that it's like to end the whole experiment and that like somehow it didn't work, that they already had data that they didn't like. So therefore they're like, oh, well, let's not do the expansion because we're already looking at this information that, you know, is bad. But so that stuff is, is not true at all. Like there there was no data possible from the, the even the first year because they couldn't access that data until at the end of the year. Um, so it was a year later because of the way that the Finland uh, government and data and stuff works. So it, it, there was no information available to negatively judge the experiment and, you know, we'll we'll know soon. And it, it seems like a prudent decision, too. And it, I would have preferred for them to expand it as well. But, you know, if they want to wait until 2020 to get results and then decide what they want to do, sure, that seems logical. Why not? 
And so another aspect of this as well is that, so this was focused only on the, the unemployed. Right. And it really, it, it didn't change their amount of income at all. So people like kind of look at this as thinking, okay, so people weren't receiving anything and then they were started receiving something. And then, so that would hurt their ability, um, you know, their work incentive. Uh, but what, what, that's not the case. And status quo is that they were already receiving a conditional income for being unemployed. The only change, the only change that, that between the, the experimental condition and the control group is that the experimental condition, those people get to keep their income that they're receiving for being unemployed when they become employed. Whereas the control group is the under the existing status quo, which is that that money is pulled away when they become employed. Yes. Yeah. So again, all you're doing is testing basically what the effect, what the extent of the effect will be as far as the amount of work disincentive that you reduce because the mm-hmm. existing system has a work disincentive and they're testing to see if you remove that disincentive, what is the effect? Uh, are people right, going to right. work say 10% more in part-time jobs? Are they going to be 5% more likely to do full-time jobs? Like what is the extent of that singular change? And so essentially, I mean, it's guaranteed really that people will do more work because they're less punished for that compared to the status quo. And there's no way that that's not going to happen just because you're punishing people into the existing system and you're allowing them to be more rewarded otherwise. The question is to the degree and the, the degree will help, um, you know, figure out, well, what is the, um, how much of a benefit is this for the unemployed? And if it works for them, then what about other people as well? And, you know, it goes from there. But so really it's just a matter of how much of a difference that this makes, not that it will, and not that there's really any question that will have a negative impact. It's pretty much, I would say virtually impossible that people would work less for being, you know, more rewarded for working, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it makes sense either. Either, and uh, you know, again, we have situations where, you know, in Los Angeles, the minimum wage is fifteen dollars an hour, which is a hell of a lot higher. It's almost double what the federal minimum wage is. But I can tell you right now, fifteen dollars an hour is not a livable wage in the city of LA. You cannot pay rent on that, let alone put food on your table. So it seems to me, again, this is something where UBI would help. These folks are having their income supplemented and it's actually raising them from a standard of poverty. And I don't I don't see how that's again, I don't see how that's a bad thing. I wanted to ask you um, about Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang is uh, has thrown his hat into the ring. He's going to be running for president on the Democrat ticket or at the primary in uh, 2020. And Andrew is basically running on on a universal basic income platform. So one thing I, I do want to mention is that a universal basic income, how many, how many people here think it seems like fantastic or far out or too good to be true? It's okay. You can raise your hand. It's cool. So the, the thing that most people don't realize is that it actually passed the House of Representatives in 1971 under Richard Nixon. Martin Luther King was for it. Uh, a thousand economists signed a letter saying this would be great for the economy and society. The Roosevelt Institute projected that a universal basic income would grow the economy by two and a half trillion or 13% and create four and a half million new jobs because people would have more money to spend. So it's actually a very pro-growth measure. 
And if you had a Democratic-leaning Congress, or even a, a mixed Congress, because some Republicans and Libertarians love this plan, uh, then you could get it through. Yes, Brian. He is, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so he gave a, he was at Progress Iowa, um, giving some speeches on this a couple of weeks ago that I watched. Um, and mm-hmm. a lot of what he said made a lot of sense. I saw some pushback from some folks on the left because he is uh, ex-Silicon Valley. Again, we're getting back into that that uh, argument, mm-hmm. <laughs> which doesn't make sense to me. Um, what are your feelings on a- Andrew and his platform? Is is he somebody you, you are going to support going into 2020, um, et cetera? Yeah, so uh, to to be fair, I'm actually serving as a you know an advisory role to to Andrew, and I okay. serve a, a friend even. So um, yeah, absolutely, I support Andrew, and uh, yeah, I, mean, I think it's extremely important what he's doing. He's he's really getting the message out there, and really, I, I think he's going to have a large impact as far as getting the conversation more around automation and the effects of that and what we should be doing. And of course, around basic income as the sole solution to that, because I mean, we, if you look at the last uh, debating rounds in the last presidential campaign, there was no discussion of of automation. It wasn't even on the table. And I'm like screaming at it, you know, I'm trying to get it out there like via Twitter and stuff like, why aren't we talking about this? Are we really need to be talking about this. So I know because of Andrew, that it will definitely be talked about. This is going to be on the table, and that is just um, it's a huge improvement and a huge change. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really important what he's doing. Why would we not want people to be better off? And and again, if the result of making capitalism work better is to actually better enable post-capitalism, then why would we not? do that. Like, it's weird yeah. to think that that because someone is talking about making capitalism work better, that you're, like, saving capitalism uh, and preventing us from ever moving past it. It, you know, right, right, right. doesn't but make any know, sense at all to think about it that way. I, I, yeah, right, Scott. And that's exactly the argument that is being made, that I can see at least, is uh, they're saying that because this is sort of a stepping stone to where we need to be, that it's preserving a system that's very much broken. But at the same time, look, I'm not the person that's going to argue for lesser evils. I never have. If you wanted to vote for Jill Stein because she thought you thought that she fit your ideals more than Hillary Clinton, good on you. I'm not going to chastise you for that. I wouldn't uh, chastise anybody for saying I'm done with lesser evils. I don't see this as a lesser evil. I am absolutely, I mean, I'm Swedish, so I'm, I'm absolutely a democratic socialist. To me, this is just how our government should be. So I would like to see us move beyond the capitalist system that we have here in the United States. Having said that, I can say that and still say this is going to be a tough battle. You have a... We live in a country in which the government system and the economic system are very much intertwined. You know, I would say capitalism is a form of political economy, but it, you know, there's something that happened differently in in Sweden that happened differently in the United States. We still have a free market system in Sweden, but it's not so intertwined in the government. The government's there to backstop all of the problems that are inherent in that. 
right? Mm-hmm. And in the United States, raw capitalism is simply the government system, period. It's just all conflated on top of each other. And the, the problem is, is people grow up in the system thinking this is the only way it can be. Every time I try to tell folks that there are other right. types of free markets, they get cross-eyed because they don't understand what I'm saying. They're like, no, there's no such thing as a free market that's not capitalist. And I kind of have to chuckle at that. I'm like, well, of course there is, but okay, American propaganda. <laughs> you know. So, so it's, yeah. gonna, it's, gonna, it's a tough road is what I'm saying. It's going to be a tough road, and you have to change the hearts and minds of just about everybody. And I have no problem at all with us having a stepping stone in between these things. I think eventually we'll end up in a post-capitalist society because capitalism is simply failing. And um, I just, you know, I don't see how you, I don't see the way around that at this point. And um, I really enjoyed Andrew's um, commentary on it. And I do think that he's, whether he wins or loses, I think he's added a lot of value to the conversation simply by running on this platform and getting people to really hear what he has to say. And I don't think you're automatically an evil person just because you woke, worked for Silicon Valley. I mean, my God, everybody's not Jeff Bezos. <laughs> you know, look, I hate Jeff Bezos, too. He's a jackass. But, but you know, again. Yeah, it's, Andrew Yang is talking about essentially ending poverty, and he's talking about providing universal health care to everyone. Right. And he's talking about changing the way that we measure things from just purely GDP to measuring actually, you know, figuring out uh, a slew of measurement sticks that make more sense, uh, yeah. you know, happiness and yeah. health and mortality rates and, right. and um, you know, all the education rates. And there's just there's a whole lot of ways to judge the success and measure the success of society, society that go beyond how much total money is exchanging mm-hmm. hands. Oh, I agree. So I think that, that that really, again, is an important step towards more uh, of, a, of a post-capitalism yeah. is actually getting out of only looking at things through dollar signs. Yeah. Like, let's actually look at things through what really matters Happiness. to people. Yeah. And, the, yeah, and if that's what he's talking about, it, it, it makes no sense to say, well, you know, because he used to work in Silicon Valley, that that's a bad thing. You know, it, it, again... It's like, um, it's like, so an analogy I think would be, um, let's say if our, if, um, if you really want, if you really like, uh, butterflies, let's say, mm-hmm. or, you know, let's say, and you're looking at this and, and it's like, well, a caterpillar needs to be in a cocoon to turn into a butterfly. Right. And, uh, you know, saying that, well, let's like prevent, um, Let's prevent the cocoon because the cocoon isn't the butterfly. We're anti-cocoon. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, you're you're preventing that stage that that's connects fair. those things. Yeah. No, that's fair. That's totally fair. We do need a stage. You know, and maybe, you know, some folks are going to say, like, like the one thing that I have against uh, Karl Marx's book is that he thinks it has to be a violent political revolution. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think it has to be violent. I think we can have stepping stones such as this to get there. And I think the more people that experience firsthand the problems of the the uh, society we're in right now, the more open they are to listen to solutions. If eventually enough people will reach the point of understanding that the inco- income inequality is so untenable and so severe that it will absolutely, I mean, the plutonomy is going to continue to extract wealth because that's what they do. These folks, the way the system is set up, it's designed to allow them to continually extract wealth to gain profit. 
And they're just living in that system uh, and benefiting from it. But eventually they're going to be losing from that because it comes back around when you have nobody left to sell widgets to. So uh, that's where we're headed. I don't know when we get there, but we're definitely getting closer to that day um, with each passing um, decade. So I think in the meantime, UBI absolutely preserves uh, well-being for a lot of folks, and it's something we should definitely consider and not absolutely write off. So if somebody wants to follow you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle, Scott? I want to make sure that they um, can start reading your stuff because it's really good. Thanks. Uh, yeah, my Twitter handle is at uh, Scott Santons. Um, it's really easy to find me. You can find me on Facebook at Scott Santons. Um, my blog is scottsantons.com. So, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty easy to find me. Just remember my name or just look up, like, you can Google Basic Income Scott and you'll probably find me. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. But, uh, I, Did you want to add anything? I also wanted to... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to I just want to also mention, too, that um, you know, as, since we're talking about inequality here at the end of our, our discussion, yeah. I just want to, to kind of emphasize that um, there's kind of a... There's a... There, there's a, a false dichotomy, a false dichotomy being drawn here, where it's like all or, or nothing, and uh, it, I think of it as like a as like a temperature gauge, like in a room. So yeah, let's say absolute equality would be uh, would be zero degrees. Uh, let's even say it's absolute zero, <laughs> you know? and then extreme inequality is like surface of the sun hot, and it's like well. You know, we don't have to choose between those two things. What we want is we want a temperature that works best for us, that we are able to operate best in, that we don't get too hot or too cold. You know, so inequality, I think, is the same way. We want a certain amount of inequality, but we don't want far too much inequality. And it's an, and we, we've got to figure out how to get to that better equality state. And I think that we think um, absolutely helps with that. Not only does it directly um, redistribute through, um, you know, the debt transfer from the top to the, the bottom and middle, but also, again, it provides that bargaining power, which enables people to demand more through their income that they're earning. And so that's another aspect of it. And also, it depends on how it's funded. So you you could fund it through income, but you could fund it through financial transaction taxes, which would be hugely progressive and mostly go to you know, mostly only draw income from those at the top because those at the top are the ones trading most of the stocks. So the rest of us don't really own any. And if you look at like a land value tax, and again, most of your wealthy have most of their wealth like in land and stuff. And most people who are poor and middle, you don't really own a lot. So it, it depends on what you tax. They can absolutely target more at the top more than otherwise and reduce inequality even further. So there's a lot of like levers to pull, a lot of options, and there are multiple elements to basic income that reduce inequality to levels that I think maximize um, our well-being, that you want things to be equal enough but not too unequal, that really we're, we're happy, we're, we're secure in our lives, we're able to pursue what's important to us. Like That's what's important. And I guess one other thing about this, too, because um, related to inequality and, say, happiness, is that, you know, again, 
even, and this is true even of socialists and, and, and Marxists and whatnot, is that even they will look only at income and they'll get stuck in that um, that that perspective. So, you know, they'll say that it, it, it's wrong that, um, you know, someone only have uh, or only earn, you know, $15,000, $20,000 a year while someone else is rich and, you know, they're getting so much more. And, like, from my perspective, again, like, I don't earn that much, but I, because I have a basic income, I, I really have absolute control over what I do. And, you know, I have, I feel security, and because I get to do what I want to do, then I'm happy. And so if you looked only at, um, you know, money, you could look at me and think that I'm unhappy and a millionaire is happy. But you could, if you were really to look down at it, you'd say, well, you can find millionaires who are miserable and hate it. And, it, and I'm happy. So it's not the only thing. Income is not the only thing. And, and judging inequality only through a monetary perspective is not the only thing. You, it's not. It's about inequality of health, about inequality of education, about right. inequality of well-being and happiness and the ability to pursue what's most important to you. Like, there's so much more to inequality than yeah. just money. I agree. Are you a fan of yeah. John Rawls? I have to ask. If you oh, are, oh, oh, yes, yes, okay. yes. Yeah, Rawlsian. Yeah, sure. Because you pretty much described his theory of justice right there. Uh, I agree with you. You know, we're never going to get to a place of perfect liberty or a place where there's no inequality. This is an untenable goal. So the question becomes, what is the least amount of inequality that we're willing to tolerate as a society? And I think that's a very attainable goal. And it has more to do. You're right. It's about the whole well-being. It's not just income. It's happiness. It's all of these various things. Uh, and the reason I asked about John Rawls is because, you know, he discussed this in, with his original position that we all have different social starting places and how do we sort of equalize those social starting places, which gives everybody a fair... Yes. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, the, I, the, I digress. The veil of ignorance, <laughs> the, the veil of ignorance is, is a great way of looking at this. You know, if you, if you get to decide before you're born, what is the best possible system to be born into? Yeah. You, you absolutely want to be, to create a, a reality where you have a fair shot and your opportunities are there. That's right. And, uh, you know, at the same time, you, you, you could want to gamble and you could say, well, I want there to be some odds that I could start off a lot better than I would otherwise. But at the same time, you don't want the, the worst position to be the absolute worst That's and right. that you could be stuck in that so Maximum. yeah we want to make a society where your odds are the best that you can live a good happy life no matter what your starting point is That's and right. yeah it's a, it's a good goal to have 